Welcome to Slow Agency. In this productivity-saturated world, this podcast offers a space for writing center and writing studies people to slow down, think, dialogue, and reflect on issues affecting their professional lives. I'm Esther Namubiru. I'm Wajali. And I'm Anna Habib. We are honored to steward this podcast. To learn more about Slow Agency, visit Connecting Writing Centers Across Borders, a blog of WLN, a journal of writing center scholarship. Today, we're speaking with Asao Inoue, Professor and Associate Dean for Academic Affairs, Equity, and Inclusion in the College of Integrative Sciences and Arts at Arizona State University. His research focuses on anti-racist and social justice theory and practices in writing assessments. His book, Anti-Racist Writing Assessment Ecologies, Teaching and Assessing for a Socially Just Future, won the 2017 CCCC Conference on College Composition and Communication Outstanding Book Award for a Monograph, and the 2015 CWPA Council of Writing Program Administrators Outstanding Book Award. In this discussion, we'll talk about NOA's research on anti-racist writing pedagogies. We'll also explore how to apply his approach to the Writing Center and global post-colonial contexts as we create more equitable and inclusive learning spaces for our students. We hope you enjoy this discussion. So in 2017, you and your former colleagues at the Writing Center at the University of Washington, Tacoma, composed an anti-racist and social justice statement. Um, I liked how the statement made it explicit that there is no inherent standard of English and that racism is pervasive in the use of the so-called standard English, for example, when it comes to when it becomes a tool for judgment or gatekeeping. Um, And as a tutor myself, sometimes I I do struggle between what's expected, but then what um, the students want to express. Um, So how do you see anti-racist language pedagogies get translated uh, into writing center practices yeah, I mean, good, really great question. And I do think that writing centers play an important role in anti-racist work on all campuses. Now, I should say that most of what I have been, my thinking has been based on, in U.S.-centered universities and, and such. And so so when I think of anti-racist work there, it's, it's it likely looks quite different than somewhere else, like, say, in India or China or, or North Africa or wherever. Um, uh, so I want to be real careful, like I'm, <laughs> and say like I'm thinking from a U.S. Um, uh, university writing center um, uh, perspective. But I think um, as if we if we think that what's most important and what's most valuable in a student's literacy experiences in a in a college or university is their labor that that they do it, how much they do it, and what they get out of it, the meaning they get out of it. If if that's really if we really think that's central. And that we are, we accept the battle. That is what we accept that what comes out of that is this rich and diverse ways in which someone might do English, for instance, or something or some other language. Then I think it might suggest that writing centers aren't a center that 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 describes or that reinforces one standard. That center might encourage or find ways to create that that babble, if you will, or to create the the richer, diverse landscape that exists on that campus. And then we are looking at the politics of the languages there. 
And I think that's the important part. That is because it, that's where we get the disagreements. That's where we get a nursing professor over here saying, my students have to learn English this way, X, Y, and Z, because if they don't, then people die in the hospital. And I would say, show me proof that a certain kind of English kills people in hospitals. I don't believe it. Um, now, it could be true, but I'm going to need evidence. Before I'm not just going to buy it because we accept, carry with it, all the cultural and social baggage of particular kinds of Englishes and a standard English as the most communicative and effective, et cetera, et cetera. But that's the argument that I've been that I've received from, from places like nursing uh, programs and schools and business programs and schools. And they're usually the ones with the highest like rejection rates based on uh, a standardized uh, English tests and things like that. Um, so I think there's uh, there's a there's a, a way to to allow writing centers to be the center of the politics of English um, and its judgment, or the politics of language and its judgment on a campus, and that's a really really important role to be able to mediate those politics, at least help people see it, see the politics for what they are, not make a judgment on it, not decide, and certainly not tell a student, no, I'm not going to help you with that because, you know, because that's a dominant English. No, people come to school and people come to a classroom for all kinds of reasons. And, all, and, and, and just because I've spent the last 30 years thinking about racism and language and thinking about white supremacy and language doesn't mean that I got to expect everyone around me to be in the same place about those, those ideas that I'm at. Um, and nor does it mean that I'm even right about about half of it. So I'd rather um, try to be generous enough to say, well, let's just see what we have here. Let's just open up the politics and then we can talk through them. We're going to let you have yours. You got to let me have mine. And then we see how they sit together. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm often reminded these days of because I'm thinking about e ecological metaphors in my classroom. As good, I'm often thinking um, in terms of ecologies. And so I'm reminded of of uh, the biodiversity that is ultimately the most healthy for our planet mm -hmm. and the biodiversity is ultimately most healthy for people and for uh, clean air and clean water and vibrant uh, ecosystems out in the world. And we, I think that that principle likely applies well in universities and in places, in, in, in urban settings and in cities and so forth, where you have lots of people. Imagine a university where everybody talked exactly the same way thought exactly the same way, saw the world exactly the same way, how much innovation and new ideas would, would occur? Not many. In fact, probably none. Because everyone's thinking a lot. Everyone will reach the same conclusions. They'd have the same ways of thinking about stuff, the same ways of seeing, experiencing, feeling the world. And it just would not be as vibrant as it is today. So there's the paradox that we have. Like I think that we ought to recognize that diversity, um, that linguistic diversity is really, really important to critical thinking. You can't have critical thinking without perspectives that are that are not dominant. It's not possible. You have structural dominant thinking, and that is not critical. <laughs> That's structural dominant thinking. Critical thinking usually is be able to see from the outside of that that thinking. So, how do you do that? You have to have perspectives, people, languages, ideas, logics that are outside of that dominant way of seeing things. So, what I'm hearing is that you you would encourage, I guess, writing tutors to embrace whatever perspective students bring in to the writing center? I, I mean, I think part of the answer is helping um, students who come into a writing center see the politics that okay. is inherent in everything they're already doing. So they got a paper, they got an assignment they're writing for, and they've got a rubric, and they've got an assignment that the professor's given them. And Initially, you know, usually the, the student comes in, I need help with this so that I can do this as well as possible. Um, there's problems with that. 
we there might that center might also offer information about the problems with graded ecologies in in which language is being used to grade. Um, but there there are also ways to look at to look at the assignment and to look at what the judgments that the professor is offering or that that they would offer, and figure out constructive ways to navigate those the politics of, of those uh, of that place. And then it might also be important for that writing center to keep track of those things. That is, keep track of programs, professors, courses that give certain groups of people trouble and maybe reach out to those, those programs, departments, uh, courses, and see if there's ways to, to offer the expertise of the writing center and their staff um, in, uh, to help develop pedagogy, to help develop better assessment um, mechanisms and better ways to respond to students. Um, in most places that I've been to, most universities that I've been to that have writing centers, they have, this has been, a, a, of course, a, an important part of the writing center work, but um, you know, you get uneven um, responses <laughs> depending on where you, who you talk to in, at the university. But I think um, uh, a culture of it is important, but this also requires really strong leadership at, the, at that location to, to say, this is important work to do. I, I do think that, that writing centers moving forward, they need to reorient. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I don't know if it's acceptable anymore, at least in writing studies generally, or it's becoming less acceptable to simply be part of the colonizing machine, right. the linguistic colonizing. And that's what I think we could argue, one could argue that there's been, it's been a mainstay of what's been attractive about and what's been fundable about a writing center is that an institution will say, oh, this is helping students X, Y, and Z in our, in our midst, and therefore we're going to fund it. We're going to give it a space. We're going to give it money. We're going to give it um, a, a tenure line, et cetera, et cetera. And so, so there's, there's the push and pull also in that, that the minute you realize a, a different um, a, a purpose, goal, or set of goals, it becomes less uh, enticing for the institution. So you have to, again, you have to come back to the, lead, so the leadership and see, and then take your, your accusation. Now, I, I, I think I tend to be maybe a little uh, radical in a good way, but radical in the, in some of these views, because I think I don't, I'm not convinced that, that it's necessary to have um, most students trying to toe some linguistic line and then that writing centers need to do that work. Um, I'm not saying that, that a, an international student who comes to um, from China that comes to here that wants to and is trying to learn a dominant English and that is their primary goal and they want to do that and they come to the writing center to get help with that. I don't think that we should turn that student away. What they're asking to do is be a probationary member of a particular linguistic class that is also associated by race, right? So they're asking to be part of that by learning this. So they're essentially saying, I would like to be part of the colonizing group. I don't want to be part of the colonized. Now, I think our job as we're in a writing center would be to let that student understand that political situation globally and locally. Then they can make up their mind. How do you feel about this? I'm not saying that, it's, that we're stacking the deck or anything like that. I'm just saying, like, these are the hard choices that we have. Um, we, they're not easy for anyone, the student or for the tutor or for the director or, the, or others involved in that writing center. But they're certainly important to do, I think. <laughs> When you when you started to talk about um, what 
for instance, language instructors, especially those that are teaching English as a, a second language and they're having to teach it as the standard uh, or, or tutors that, that are receiving students that have that goal, um, turn them away, um, but help them to see the system. One question that I had around that is, okay, let's, let's imagine that this is a center in a community outside of North America and outside of the West. Um, let's imagine that this community is uh, a post-colonial community and English was the language of the colonizer in that community. And so let's imagine that the, the ecology within which this center is functioning, there is the, there is the idea that if you want to get ahead in our society, you need to speak English. It's the language of commerce. It's the language of media. We might have many, many other languages we could use, but we're using English as the official language of this society. How would you proceed with a linguistic justice lens, an anti-racist lens? How would you proceed as a tutor in that society? <laughs> wow, uh, what a great question. And it's, it's great because it's so unfair. I've, I've not lived in one. <laughs> so, but it also reveals my own biases, right? Like my own biases as being living in a U.S. Uh, society all my life and being educated in one. Uh, so I don't have the privilege of, of of being able to be educated outside of that context. I wish I had. Um, so let, I'm going to imagine, and forgive me for probably being wrong on a number of points. Um, I think if if I were, I'm just going to imagine myself as a director in a, of a writing center that might have some power to do some things. And what, what would my, what would I think our orientation could be? Well, I think our orientation as a center, generally speaking, would have to be against those colonizing systems, which includes the linguistic ones. Doesn't mean that we have to not, not offer the assistance that most everybody in that context likely is expecting. And that will probably tangibly help them get a job and so forth. But I would ask, I would want to continue to ask them that what does it mean to get a job in such a colonized system where it requires that English? What does that mean? It, I mean, one thing it means, I think, is that it means that we perpetuate the dominance of a particular um, brand of English in that space, in that colonized space, even after the colonizers have left. Mm -hmm. So the colonizers never left in the first place. Mm -hmm. They're in our minds, man. They're on our tongues. I want to know what are we trading off when we do that? So, and I want to keep asking, what does that mean for us? How do we language our way out of that? It's, is it somehow that we found the right language that's going to work for everybody? I don't think so. What we found was a, was a colonizer. I mean, I, it's a really, really, really important question, probably more important as every year goes by globally. And we ought to be thinking more carefully about these questions and not simply uh, letting those politics um, run rampant. Um, but I think the, the the orientation of the of the writing center ought to be, or should, probably would be, um, pointed at helping students understand those politics, not to not not to have them make a certain decision over another, but to understand what the, the world they're actually walking into, and languaging in, and that they might actually have other ways to do stuff, that they might have other ways to shape their tongues. But I do know that, that we, we don't escape our histories are, are very easily, linguistically, geographically, politically, um, power-wise. We just don't escape them that, that, that easily. Uh, and so we, it, it takes concerted over time, long, uh, you know, uh, work to mm -hmm. do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
we often like to end with a, two questions. So one is, what is something that's like hooking your attention today? <laughs> um, um, so it's a book, um, and it's I would never have picked up this book because it's written by a, um, an indigenous botanist. It's the botany that I just I'm not I don't read botany botany stuff, but it's called Braiding Sweetgrass. You might have heard it. Yeah, such a good book. You're this like third person who says this to me in a, within this week. Yeah, it it it's literally the best book I've read all year, par bar, bar none. <laughs> I mean, of, of all of last year. So it it's it's so I find so many ways that it's so worth uh, discussing in a language context. And she's talking about you know plants and, <laughs> and 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 indigenous ways of understanding and relating with that. But man, it has so many language lessons in it. It has so many lessons about about language and ethics and. And because and, and this is and it illustrates one really important thing for me, which is that we that's a, a perspective about with about language and about botany and plants that we did we have not really gotten up to this point, at least not up to 2016 when the book was written. And the reason we haven't gotten it is because we have it because educational systems and publishing systems don't really allow. That's not what botany is, right? It's supposed to be like science that has to do with just like like measurements and stuff like that. That's a white discourse that comes from white European central things like universities and such that don't value uh, indigenous um, uh, 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 ways of understanding and relating to nature. But the minute we see it, we realize all that we have been missing. It's, I mean, it's like it's like an entire new country of stuff. <laughs> We've been living in a tiny little place, Rhode Island. We were in Rhode Island. And there. meanwhile, there's New York and there's New, <laughs> New Hampshire and there's Vermont and there's so many other places that we've just never even seen because we've not thought that those things were places. We thought they were something else, like right. something. I don't know. So anyway. Time we've been in. Yeah. that's so, so and, and it's also such a beautifully evocative book. It's just, the. it's so... It's so good. It's so good. And then the second question is about a question or a line of inquiry that is like maybe elusive. You haven't yet pinpointed it that you've been thinking about a lot lately. Mm. Um, I think I think probably because of the the current um, manuscript that I'm just finishing. Um, I was really productive this last uh, uh, sixteen months. Um, wrote two books. Um, the f- first one's about to. This first one will be out um, this spring sometime. We're just finishing up contract publishing details. But there's the second book that's created the question for me. So someone, um, they were, it's about uh, ELA teachers and the book is written to, to ELA high school teachers. Uh, and it's, a, they wanted me to write a book that said, oh, well, help, help ELA teachers um, do anti-racist um, pedagogy, like do anti-racist teaching in class, in, in their classrooms. When, as I was writing the book over the last uh, six months or so, the central theme for me wasn't how do you be an anti-racist teacher? It was, what does it mean to be one? And so for me, that's a very, very, very different question. The how worked, ends up becoming this w- w- habit of white language all, all over again. That's what I was maybe noticing uh, nascently or, t- or in lots of calls for me to do work with faculty here and there. Do a workshop on this for, you know, on grading contracts and and, and under the auspices, oh, it's anti-racist. Like, what? wait a minute. Like, we're talking about two different things. If you want to think about anti-racism, we certainly can talk about contracts in the context of that, but we do it. But you do not have to do that if you just want. If you want some resources on how to do this in your classroom, that's fine. But you really ought to know what it means to be one. That's a you are positioning yourself 
in a very different way in a system, politically, ideologically, uh, and so forth, to change structures and not just to insert a, a different way of grading so that you're so that that has made um, that question, what does it mean to be yeah. anti-racist, um, is really, really important. Um, it doesn't mean the how isn't important. It just means it's really a second question. <laughs> it's, it's not, it's because it's really how do I, in my context, mm-hmm. with the abilities and the things I have and the body I have, how do I be anti-racist? Mm-hmm. It's not the same for all of us because um, mm-hmm. we are not positioned politically and, and, and so forth in the system the same ways. Right. Mm-hmm. You, um, are you uh, allowed to share the titles of these books or not yet? Yeah. Um, the, the one that's, that's just about ready is called Above the Well, uh, an anti-racist uh, literacy argument of a boy of color. So it's half, half it's a literacy uh, narrative of me oh, wow. and my growing up and half an argument for white language supremacy in the world and what we can do about it. Gosh, thank you so much. Al. This is really inspiring and just fun. Thank you all. Thank you all, all three of you for your careful and thoughtful questions and your reading of my stuff. So I appreciate and I appreciate the work you're doing. This is great. That's it for today's episode. Thanks to our guest for the insightful discussion. We would also like to thank our listeners and blog subscribers for supporting us. And a special thanks to Emmanuel Mubiru, who provided our theme song. For notes and resources mentioned today, visit the Connecting Writing Centers Across Borders blog at wlnjournal.org forward slash blog.